Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11 this morning as we continue in our series that we've entitled simply The Gospel of John, a biography of Jesus written by Jesus' best friend on earth, the Apostle John. And what John has been telling us over these last 10 chapters is that Jesus is the answer. He's the answer to all that concerns us. He's the answer to all that befuddles us. He's the answer to all that we're anxious and worried about. Jesus is the answer, and he's proven this, John has, by declaring and demonstrating six different signs or miracles that Jesus has done. We've seen him turn water into wine. We've seen him heal an official son. We've seen him uh, multiply loaves and fishes, walk on water, give sight to the blind, and give legs back to a crippled man. All of that to tell us that Jesus has immense power and authority over the things that concern us here in life. But if we were to stop there, Jesus would be a great guy to have in a bind. He'd be a great individual to deal with some of our temporal issues in life. But what we have in John chapter 11 is Jesus being the answer to our greatest of enemies, the greatest of worries, the greatest of concerns that we have as human beings, and that is Jesus is the answer to our death. Today in John chapter 11, we are going to see that Jesus is in fact the resurrection and the life. And if we would believe in him, if we would trust him, though we die, we shall live. Three little words. Three little words that would change the trajectory of people's lives. In John chapter 11, three little words. Lazarus is dead. If you've lived for any amount of time, you no doubt have heard those words spoken about someone close to you. Those words would first be spoken to me in 1990 as a freshman in high school when my senior brother, who had not come home the night before from a youth group event, and my parents are looking around for him, sent me to school to find him because they thought he had spent the night with a friend. After third hour, I would walk out of the hallway from my class and I would meet my father, my guidance counselor, and my principal. Amidst all the noises of a busy school hallway, I would hear those three words, Chris is dead. Last August, on a trip with friends to Tennessee, vacationing with my family, we would get word as we were heading into, of all places, an amusement park that my mom had had a serious health episode and that it did not look good. We quickly left the amusement park and headed back to where we were staying so we could pack the bags and get home because the voices that we heard on the other side of the phone made it sound like it was dire. About an hour into our nine-hour journey, we get a call from my sister-in-law saying those three words, Mom is dead. Three little words. Three little words that don't just ruin our day or our week or our month or even our year, but they, they go about in our heads bringing havoc and disarray and sorrow and pain for a lifetime. Three little words. Someone you know is dead. Now, it isn't that just death happens, it is the grief that comes. I love what someone said about grief with the death of a loved one this way. They said, grief is like an earthquake. 
The first one hits you and the world falls apart. Even after you put the world together again, there are aftershocks and you never really know when those will come. The grief of losing a loved one or dealing with a very heartbreaking situation is like an earthquake with multiple aftershocks. Years upon years later, feeling the reverberation of those aftershocks can bring us to the very core of who we are. And it begs the question as Christ followers, why God? Why, God, would you allow a family like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, some people so clearly close to you, so, in clear, so clearly in love with you? Why, God, would you allow me, why, God, would you allow my friends who love you so deeply to bring such sorrow and such pain? The answer is written, I think, well in this next slide where it says the following, God has something to say to us in pain and struggle that can't be said in ease and luxury. Remember, God is more concerned about your Christ-likeness than he is your comfort. And he wants to use moments to teach us lessons that can't be learned when life is going well. It takes sorrow and hardship and suffering to bring those lessons and those truths out. So this morning, we're going to learn about what it means when the world caves in. Where are we to go? What are we to do? And I want you to know, just as Jesus has been the answer to everything else that has perplexed us or concerned us or involved us in this life, that even in the most difficult of moments, even upon death, Jesus is the answer. But in order to live that out, there are some truths about Jesus that we need to know. So if you haven't turned to John chapter 11, and the opening of the chapter begins like this. The setting has changed and Jesus is no longer in the temple, but now he, uh, the, the scene finds itself, Jesus isn't there, but the scene changes to Bethany, a city outside of the city of Jerusalem, about two or three miles away, and we are taken into the family room, if you will, or at least the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. These people are dearly loved by Jesus. In fact, three times John makes it clear how much Jesus loved these people. It says that Lazarus, the brother, is ill. This isn't a cold, this isn't a flu, this is a real sickness. In fact, the word ill there or sick literally means dead and and, and near death. And that's exactly what's going on. And so what we see is now this family that finds themselves in a load of trouble, in a place of difficulty, they turn to the only person they know. It says they send word to Jesus. The first thing that we need to understand in our time of death and sorrow and pain and turmoil and tribulation is that we need to turn to Jesus who is in control Jesus is in control when trouble comes so we can be calm. Now, I want you to know right away, we're going to work through this, so don't jump to assumptions or assertions. We need to recognize that the first thing we must do in times of difficulty and sorrow is to invite Jesus into our midst. The best thing you can do is to call upon Jesus when you find yourself in great pain and sorrow. Jesus says he will come. 
He will come in his way. He will come in his time. But he will, as we'll learn in a moment, he will come to our aid. But it's more than just simply inviting Jesus. Many of us in our times of struggle and turmoil and pain, we invite Jesus to be a spectator as he watches us. And we're going to see that Mary and Martha do that in some ways. But we need to understand in turning to Jesus, we need to trust Jesus as well. We need to trust that Jesus has everything under control. Now that's hard to do when your world's caving in. To trust that Jesus has got it all under his control. But we need to, when these difficult times come and we don't understand what's happening, we have to go to the Lord and say, Lord, you've got this. Lord, this didn't come as a shock to you, even though it's a shock to me. Lord, you've got the power to address this in any way you see fit. And Lord, you promise that good things will come as a result of this bad thing. I am going to trust you that you have a plan and purpose for this great despair in my life. I like what Matt Carter, a pastor in Texas, has to say about this. He says, nothing happens by chance. Nothing is without purpose. Whether sorrow, sickness, or death, nothing happens to you that God does not permit for a reason. You will, not encounter, you will encounter no situation in life in which God cannot be glorified. It doesn't matter if it's an impossible boss, a loveless marriage, a crushing tuition bill, or a dysfunctional family. God can be glorified in every situation. You need to learn to ask, no matter the situation, how can I glorify God in this. Our normal response is to ask, what is the fastest way out of this situation? But Christian maturity is learning to look at a situation and knowing that whatever you face, you face it so God can be glorified through you. Notice verse four. There's a plan and a purpose to this terrible situation in the life of Martha, Mary, and even Lazarus. This death which seems so untimely, this death that seems so senseless and so burdensome to the family around him has a purpose, that Christ might be glorified. You and I must recognize that God has a plan to use even the good, bad, and yes, the ugly things in our life for his purposes and for his praise. And we will know whether or not we believe in God's sovereign control over the circumstances of life if we start to allow some things to happen in our lives. Notice Martha and Mary don't fully recognize that Jesus is in control. They think Jesus has some control, but not total control. They know Jesus has some power, but not ultimate power. They know Jesus has some level of authority, but not ultimate authority. And we recognize this by some of the things that not only they do, but even some things we see from the disciples. So how do you know in your times of grief and sorrow whether or not you're trusting that God is in control? Well, let's look at a couple of them. Number one, write these down. Maybe these might be helpful, practical things for you. Number one, in your grief and sorrow, do you assume things? Do you assume things? We see this in verse three. Mary and Martha assume that in their sorrow that Jesus is going to show up. 
Notice how they ask. In fact, they really don't even ask. Notice their statement. It's not a request. Can you come? It's not an invitation. Will you come? It's not even a cry for help. SOS, Lord, come quickly. It is really a guilt trip. And the guilt trip is based not on how much Lazarus loved Jesus, but how much Jesus loved Lazarus. And so in essence, what Mary and Martha are saying is, you say you love Lazarus. You say he's a friend. And if you say that to be true, then surely you will be here in our hour of need. Prove your love for Lazarus by being here when he needs you most. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of that kind of guilt trip. Or maybe you're the one giving that. In your sorrow and pain, you've gone to the closest of friends and and confidants and you've said, if you really loved me, you would have been here. If you really loved me, you would have been at the wake. If you really loved me, you would have been at the funeral. Never asking anything more, but just assuming that they were gonna be there. Now, this assumption comes on a result or on the heels of a failure. Write this down. There's a failure in our grief sometimes to acknowledge something. There's a failure to acknowledge something. That acknowledgement is that you are not the only one suffering. You are not the only one suffering. Mary and Martha, both are gonna do it. Martha gets the bad rep because she does it first. But both Mary and Martha say, had you been here, Jesus, our brother wouldn't be dead. They're blaming Jesus for his tardiness, and and, and it's a problem, okay? And we'll deal with that in a moment. But what we see going on is that there's a reason, a backstory going on, that in their grief, they don't even think about with regards to Jesus. John has told us in growing measure that people are out to kill Jesus, They want him dead. They've tried to seize him numerous times. And it is plain fact that if Jesus goes to Bethany, so close to Jerusalem, that the religious leaders will catch word Jesus is in town, they will bring their assassins, and they will kill Jesus. There is a bounty on Jesus' head. Mary and Martha don't care. Just come. We've got an issue. We don't care about what's going on in your personal life. There's no mention of, you know what, Jesus, maybe it would be best if you stay away. They're out looking for you. We know it. We've seen it. There's a mob all about you. No, they don't care. They say, we've got a problem. Jesus, come and fix it. Some of us in our grief think that we're the only one going through a hard time. Now, let's just be honest for a moment. On that day in Bethany, Lazarus is probably the only dead person, right? The only person that's died. But let's face it, in this world, death isn't the only thing that bothers us. All manner of things. You've got to imagine in a town the size of Bethany, there were a lot of hurts and pains, a lot of struggles going on. And we know Jesus himself was enduring a lot of struggles. But there was this failure to acknowledge that even in our times of greatest pain, that others are struggling. And it would be wise for us to recognize even in those moments that our world is not, I'm sorry, my personal world is not the only place where there's sorrow and pain, but that the world I live with and the people I live around, that they too are continually involved in pains and struggles 
and difficulties themselves. And it will help us to be patient and to be encouraged instead of assuming that people are gonna show up and assuming that people are gonna do what they want. So don't assume things, don't fail to acknowledge you're not the only one suffering. And number three, be careful of apathy. So we fast forward to verse 16. And now we move from Bethany back to Jesus, and Jesus has been hanging around for two days, doing ministry. He knows that Lazarus is sick. Someone came, said, listen, Mary and Martha say, you've got to come, you've got to come now. Lazarus is not well. Jesus acknowledges that fact in the opening verses of the chapter, and he says, but we're going to hang here. And the reason why is Lazarus is not going to die. This sickness will not end in death. Then he articulates midway through the chapter that Lazarus has in fact died, which is just so confusing, of course, to the disciples. Jesus now says, we're going to go to Bethany. Why he chooses now to go to Bethany after Lazarus has died is only made known to Jesus himself. Jesus knows what he's doing. He's got a plan. But herein lies the problem. Thomas and the disciples read what Jesus is doing as a death sentence. They're coming to get you, Jesus. You go to Bethlehem, you're as good as dead. And then because we're with you, we're dead. And so Thomas says, and Thomas, by the way, if you're a Winnie the Pooh fan, is Eeyore. Okay, so I'm talking to the pessimists in our, our room. I'm talking about those, whether here or online, that find themselves with a cup half-empty mindset. And here's what Thomas is thinking. Lazarus got sick. Jesus could have helped him. He didn't. Lazarus is now dead. Now Jesus is gonna go. Jesus is gonna die. And because we hang with Jesus, we're gonna die. And bad things happen in three, right? And so let's just go die with him. Grief causes us as people to give up. It causes us to think, especially when the grief is because of someone so close or a pain so big that we throw up our arms and we say, God, I quit. I'll go through life, but you know, if you just rather just have you kill me and be done with it. And for those that have lost someone close, that is a battle that's going on. Can I just personally tell you, my father is fighting that battle every day. Four or five months into not having his wife with him after all these years, fighting the apathy of just not giving up. And some of you have given up. Something bad has happened and you've thrown your hands up and say, you know what? What good can come? Might as well just take me home. This is what Job's wife said when Job endured all the trials. Curse God and die. This is not loyalty, Thomas saying, go, we'll go with you, Jesus, even to death. It's an apathetic resignation to the best of life is now past. Be careful that you don't lose the passion that God has given, even amidst the suffering. Number four, be careful, closely monitor your anger in times of grief. In verse 21, Martha hears that Jesus is coming. He doesn't even make it into town. She meets him outside of town and she brings the biggest of all guilt trips in all of the Bible. Had you been here, my brother would be alive. Have you ever received that kind of guilt trip before? Had you done something right, 
this bad thing wouldn't have happened. Now, you need to recognize with regards to it that what Mary is saying is she is, listen very carefully, I'm sorry, Martha is saying, she is putting on the shoulders of Jesus the death of her brother. And now let's just be honest, this is an outburst full of grief. She's doing it with anger. I like what uh, the Bible scholar Matthew Henry says, Martha complains of Christ's long absence and delay. She said it not only with grief for the death of her brother, but with a great resentment of the seemingly, unseemingly, unseeming unkindness of her master and savior. You were tardy, Jesus. I don't know what reason kept you. We called you. You didn't show up. You know how long those hours went by that we waited for the voice of you coming into the doorway? You have healed strangers. And here's Lazarus, the one you love, the one you care about. We've had good times together. We've lived bad times together. And in our moment of need, you aren't there. That's what Martha is doing. She is pouring out all of her anger, all of her pain onto Jesus. Maybe in your grief, you need to go back and apologize to individuals for your outbursts of anger because you've blamed them for your pain. You've blamed them for your sorrow. Maybe you've turned that attention to God and you said, hey God, I thought you were there. I thought you were gonna fix it. I thought my life was gonna be good if I followed you. I've held up my end of the bargain. What about you? That's what Martha is saying. Sometimes anger comes quickly. This is four days after Lazarus' death. It's fresh, it's raw, it's real. Some people for a long period of time wait and wait and wait. For the loss of my mom back in August, it took me four weeks. And I held it in, the anger, the frustration, the grief. And one of the biggest catering jobs I had, I had my son and my nephew on the job and they failed to do something. And I let them have it. Boy, did I let them have it. And all of the sorrow and all of the grief and all of the pain that I had been holding for about four or five weeks, I unloaded on them like they had totally done the most unpardonable thing. And I made sure they had it. And the only thing they had done was they were at the wrong place at the wrong time. We've got to be careful when our anger, listen, just because you're filled with sorrow doesn't give you a license to allow your anger to beat up everybody around you. Don't assume. Don't fail to acknowledge others are suffering. Don't give in to apathy. And don't allow your anger to get the best of you. Listen, the way we alleviate these things is by knowing and trusting that Jesus is in control. If Jesus is in control, if they really believed Jesus was in control, all of this would have been a whole lot better. Now, you say, Tim, I don't get it. You say Jesus is in control, and when trouble comes, be calm. Listen, I know you not to be a very emotional guy, but my goodness, are you a robot? You want me to be calm and not filled with grief? Listen to me, what I mean by calm, and maybe put calm with an equal sign, it is a contented, 
place of confidence. That this is not the end all be all of your life. That yes, there are times to grieve. Yes, there are times to cry and to cry loudly as Jesus will in verse 35. But we as Christ followers need to recognize we do not grieve as the world grieves. Because we have hope. We know we have a God who has a plan. And he has a plan that will live out his purposes. And that there's a purpose to our suffering. And there's a purpose to our pain. And that we have a promise that one day Jesus will take us to a place where there's no more crying, no more praying, no more sorrow. That the old things will pass away. That's what I mean by calm. First point. For the next three or four or even longer. So buckle up. And we have no more services, so you're in with me. Point number two, let's keep moving. Jesus is in control, but number two, Jesus is coming. He's coming to your aid so you will not be consumed. Jesus shows up, listen to me. Jesus shows up on time, even though in human time frames, he's late. Never think Jesus is tardy. Never think Jesus is is late, never think Jesus is delayed. Everything happens according to his right time frame. And so Martha sees this. And Martha must have been, maybe someone acknowledged, hey, you're talking to the rabbi in an angry way, don't do that. Or maybe just their internal spirit within her said, hey, this is a guy who loves me and he's a man of wonderful uh, relationship with me. She says, notice in verse 22, she gets going in the right direction. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Unlike us, Mary has no idea what's going to happen. We already seen it in color. She didn't even have it in black and white. She hasn't seen anything. The closest thing that she has seen is Jesus heal a man born blind and maybe a man who had been crippled. Now, we know from other gospels that Jesus had healed a guy named Jairus, his daughter, who had just died. And Jesus comes in, it's like he resuscitates her. But this is totally out of the realm of possibility. Lazarus has been dead for four days. And what Martha says is, listen, I don't know what you're gonna do, but I would rather trust you with the impossible than me try to deal with the possible on my own. And so what she says is, whatever you're gonna do, Jesus, I'm with you. Now, her life, in many ways, has come to a screeching halt. The temporalness of life is over. The brother she loves is dead. She's filled with grief. She's dealing with that sorrow. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Notice what Martha does, and it's something we need to do. When it seems like the road is closed in your temporal world, you need to look beyond the road closed sign to what God has promised in heaven. Lazarus is dead. She's moving on. She's saying, okay, I'm still going to trust you, God. And she says, yes, my brother will rise on the great day of the resurrection, just as all people will rise. Instead of living in today, she believes in the promise of tomorrow. Listen, that's all we have to hold on to. When trouble and difficulty and sorrow come, we can either wallow in today's issues with no hope and no peace, or we can live according to the promises of God and say, 
that our hearts don't need to be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you before I go to prepare a place for you. And once I've completed that place, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna take you to be with me forever. Martha says, today stinks, so I'm gonna look to the salvation of tomorrow. And some of you this morning who are wallowing, and I understand it, and I feel for you, but God doesn't want you to live there. Put your hope in the promises of tomorrow. This world is not the end. We have a place where no eye has seen or ear has heard what God has prepared for his people. And that is the message that Jesus has come to share. That is the message that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost so that we might have hope in this life for eternity. So that we will not be consumed. Jesus is coming, amen? He's coming so that we will not be consumed. Point number three. Jesus could have right away, he could have just from afar, outside of Bethany, said, you know, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus, come forth. But he doesn't do that. And I'm so glad he doesn't. So Jesus gets close to the house. Mary comes out. Mary's crying, the people that are with her, trying to console her are there. And in the Middle Eastern world, we need to understand this is not grieving like Americans grieve very quietly. And if you cry, you find a quiet place to do that so nobody sees you. In the Middle Eastern culture, there's weeping and wailing. And if you've ever been a part of a Middle Eastern funeral, it is unnerving because crying is a public thing. Crying is something that is accepted and received, that you love the individual. The more you love them, the more you cry. What an unnerving thing. So Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, enters into this village and there's mourners all about. And Jesus could have fixed it right then and there, but he doesn't. Jesus, notice it says, twice how much he loved these people and it says twice in verse 33 and verse 36 he's deeply moved literally he's undone literally his insides are 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 being turned upside down this is that feeling of grief a physiological feeling when life is falling apart and Jesus in his humanity is feeling it and it's welling up and he can feel the emotion. What's the emotion? The friends that he has are hurting. His disciples are scared to death. The penalty of sin and death, the stench of death is all around and Jesus being the perfect God man is seeing this confluence of, of human events taking place and him being completely human wells up and it says he cries, listen to me, Jesus is concerned about your turmoil and he cries with you. This isn't that Jesus shed a tear and just, you know, kind of just did this and moved on. It wasn't that Jesus kind of quietly laid down his head and thought about it. Literally, he wept and wept, the idea is there. He didn't weep for just a moment, he wept and he wept. He cried and he cried. And Jesus is showing us that he is the great high priest who is able to sympathize with us. 
And this isn't just true of Lazarus, but listen, church, it is true for every individual who finds himself in trials and tribulations, in death and despair. Jesus comes and he wraps his arms around you and he sympathizes with you and he tells you, cast all your anxieties and cares and worries and despair on me because I care for you. You are not grieving in isolation, friend. You are not grieving by yourself. You are grieving and your heavenly father and your Messiah is there and they want to walk beside you. They want to hear your anxieties and concerns. They want to be with you in that moment. Jesus is concerned about whatever concerns you today. So, We see the climax of what's about to take place. Jesus says, where have you left him? Where have you placed him? They show him the tomb. And Jesus goes there. And what seems like a spontaneous moment is not. And that gives us our fourth point. When our world caves in, we need to recognize Jesus is content for his plan to come to fruition. So our contentment is key. Notice when Jesus stands before the tomb, a light bulb doesn't go on in Jesus' head. I should raise him from the dead. That's a good idea. And I have the power to do that. Listen to me very carefully. Jesus didn't come up with the idea of raising Lazarus from the dead as he stood before the tomb. Nor did Jesus come up with that idea when he heard Lazarus was dead. Nor did he come up with the idea when he heard that Lazarus was sick. Nor did he come up with the idea that I'm one day going to raise Lazarus from the dead when he first met Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It wasn't when Lazarus was born. It wasn't before, it was before Jesus was born. Listen to me, before the foundations of the earth, Jesus had it in his mind that on that precise day, in that precise way, turmoil and sorrow was going to come to the life and house of Lazarus. And Jesus said before the foundations of the earth, I will raise him from the dead and use it to bring me great glory. You say, well, what does that mean for me? Whatever you're dealing with right now, whatever pain and sorrow, it didn't come as a shock to God. Before the foundations of the world, Jesus said, it is gonna happen and I'm gonna be there and I'm gonna be made great and glorious as a result and I'm gonna work all things together for the good of those I love and who are called according to my purpose. And so if God is content to watch that plan go through, if God is content to number our days, then Christians, surely we should be content in his plans as well. Therefore, we are able to say, as Job did, who lost everything, God gives and God takes away. So God gives, that's a plus, but then there's a minus. He takes away equals, blessed be the name of the Lord. If you can't get to your equals, blessed be the name of the Lord, in your pain and sorrow, let me tell you something. It isn't God that's missing it. You're missing something. And it is trusting in the plans and provision of God. He's got this. Listen to me, church. He's got it under control. He's got it figured out. 
He's known it from the beginning, and he'll see through it to the end. Why? Because Jesus finally is conquering what conquers us. Jesus stands before that tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. I'm glad he gives a first name, because he might have had a whole bunch of people coming forth. But that's exactly what he says. Lazarus, come forth, and after four days of death, Jesus conquers the death of Lazarus. It's a prelude and a picture of what Jesus is going to do on Easter Sunday. This is only a matter of weeks before Jesus will be arrested and hung on a cross and placed in a tomb and on the third day rise from the grave. And so this is the appetizer of what Jesus is going to do for you and me. But let's recognize that there's a spiritual component to it and that is what Jesus has conquered on the cross is our sin and the penalty of sin being death that what we see in Lazarus coming forth is what you and I did when Jesus called our name and he saved us from our sins. We walked out of those tombs and were resurrected and given new life in Christ. For what reason? So that the Son of God might be glorified. Why did Jesus resurrect you? Why did Jesus save you, church? So that you would demonstrate and declare the resurrection power of Jesus. So whatever happens in this world, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. If you believe in me, though you die, that you might live. Who are you turning to in your hour of need? Who are you turning to in your time of turmoil and struggle? Jesus is the answer to our death. And he is the answer that brings life. Amen?